When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us on How She Does It. On this show, we talk about all things women, money, and power. I'm Karen Feinerman. It's been a crazy year for interest rates, the Fed, banks, and mortgage rates. As we're recording this, a recession could still be on the horizon for us. About 61% of economists say it's probably not going to happen in the next 12 months, but there's always a possibility. So things are a bit scary. And while it's not nearly as bad, most of us can remember how scary the 2008 financial crisis was. It was the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression in 1929. People called it a perfect storm, a combination of predatory lending targeting low-income home buyers excessive risk-taking by global financial institutions, and the bursting of the United States housing bubble. Today, we're joined by an expert on turmoil in the financial markets. She's the woman who helped navigate us through our last economic crisis, former chair of the FDIC, Sheila Baer. We'll be talking about her incredible career, what she thinks about the current state of the economy and banks, and what she's focusing on now, a great series of books called Money Tales that teach children about investing and money management early in life. Sheila, welcome. Thanks for having me. I have so much to ask you on so many fronts. I know you as the regulator who took on the big banks in the great financial crisis of 2007 and 8. You had an enormous task, help save the banking system of the United States. But let's start with your past. How did you get from Kansas to be the head of the FDIC? Well, actually, I came to Washington, D.C. from Kansas. I went to college and law school at Kansas University, taught law for a year, and then came to Washington. Actually, I worked for the old Department of Health, Education, and Welfare as a civil rights attorney. That's how I started my career. Interesting segue to finance. And from that, Bob Dole, who was our senator and knew my family, my family, the good Kansas Republicans, needed the Senate had just flipped, and the Senate Republicans had become the majority. He was the chair of the court subcommittee of the Senate Judiciary Committee. He needed a counsel uh, for that. So that was my first big job in Washington. I worked with him for six years on the Hill and then another year, a year and a half on his presidential campaign in 1988. And that's actually when I started becoming exposed to financial services because during that time period, we had the 87 market crash. And I had to get up, sp- up to speed really fast on financial markets and the stock market in particular. I enjoyed it. And uh, then once the campaign was over, unsuccessfully, unfortunately, I'd gotten to know people at the New York Stock Exchange, and they offered me a job. And that was my first entry into financial services on the equity side. 
I knew that taking the job at the FDIC was a lot of upheaval for right. your family. And I'm curious, actually, what did your children think your job was? Yeah. Well, my older son, he was in high school by then, and he was very proud. He was aware. And uh, I joke in my book that I, I dedicated my book to my saintly husband, and he was a saint because he filled in. He went to all the teacher meetings, the school plays, the, you know, the concerts, all the, the school activities that I was missing, he went to. So the children never felt like they were not being tended to by their parents. Preston, though, was old enough to read about me in the papers, and he had pride. It was harder for our, my daughter, who was much younger. She was in early grade school. And um, that that was hard to be away from mom. But, you know, I'd come home. I'd try to spend time with her. I'd try to find some time on the weekends. And again, Scott was just so great filling in that they got through it. And I think now she understands what I did and takes some pride in that. But back then, she didn't uh, quite appreciate it the way my, my son did. So I know you attempted so many times to get the Bush administration and so many regulatory bodies to wake up and see this enormous looming threat of a bursting bubble in the U.S. housing market. How frustrating was that? It was very frustrating. So my career segued from the New York Stock Exchange to the CFTC as a derivatives regulator, commissioner and acting chair. And then I went from that to the assistant secretary for financial institutions at the U.S. Treasury Department. I had the advantage when I came to the FDIC. Those previous jobs had given me perspective of derivatives and securities markets, as well as the banking system through my treasury role. So after that, I entered academia for four years, but went on the board of a nonprofit called the Center for Responsible Lending. And they were watching very carefully what was going on in the mortgage market. Also, when I was at Treasury, I worked with a former Fed governor by the name of the late Ned Gramlich, who had also been very focused on what was going on with these unaffordable payment shock loans. This was 2001, 2002. These were perimeter players that were doing this. These were, you know... Siding repair salesmen that would go into minority neighborhoods and knock on the door and say, you know, hey, you've got some equity in your house. Let me give you a new mortgage. You can give me some cash and I'll do a new roof or whatever. And they were resetting mortgages at very high rates. So we've been looking at this when I was at Treasury, but then it was on the perimeter. It was a troubling. And Wall Street was securitizing these. So that was a concern. I say that because I'd had some experience early on in the 2000s, what was going on, and then had a window through a consumer group that was monitoring it. So when I came to the FDIC in 2006, I had some sensitivity around it. And then to the credit of the economists there, they had really been on top of what was going on in housing. We went out and bought a database of mortgages because our data systems only included what banks had on their balance sheets. These were not on bank balance sheets. These were originated primarily by non-banks and then securitized by the very largest financial institutions. So we went out, we bought a database and looked at it. Holy cow, we were terrified <laughs> at what we were seeing. And so uh, started, you know, sounding the alarm bells early and try to provide the analysis to other regulators. But there was just a lot of resistance to acknowledging that there was a problem. I mean, you can go back at, at the time, subprime is contained. That was kind of the mantra that was coming at the Fed from the Fed and Treasury. And it wasn't, and we knew it. But <laughs> it won't be the first time in my life. I wish somebody would listened to me. I look back, and I have a lot of people saying, well, you told us so, and I did, but I really would have rather they just listened to me to begin this. That would have been more satisfying. Mm -hmm. I would have been one of those people who would have said, wow, you did tell us so. <laughs> um, but in hindsight, it really was an extraordinary yeah. effort on your part. I know you were recognized. You received a Profile and Courage Award. I did, from um, Kennedy's Library, yes. Yes, from the Kennedy Library. And I mean, I know it was late, <laughs> 
and you'd rather not have it. <laughs> yeah. But that must have in some way felt somewhat fulfilling. It did. Yeah. I mean, people joke, I had a good crisis. The FDIC had a good crisis. I don't think anybody had a good crisis. But we did, you know, we stood up for the little guy. We did. I, I will freely take that accolade because that was our singular focus. We protected people who use banks, who, who deposit money in banks. And we also understood that the broader banking system was going to be under stress if we had a lot of massive foreclosures, putting homes on the market, putting further downward pressure on home prices. So we were, again, with our identification with Main Street, we really pushed hard for loan modifications as well as depositor protection. And we, we were given credit for that. And I think that was really our, our singular focus on the public. We weren't trying to bail out banks. We didn't like the bailouts. We resisted those. We tried to curb them, and we were successful. And some of that, but the public and these organizations, rep, you know, recognized what we did, and I think that was because of our singular focus on the public, on the little guy. So you were known as the Republican regulator that liberals love. <laughs> yeah, we don't hear much right these yeah. days about anyone sort of straddling, you know, straddling yeah. the aisle or bipartisan. Yeah, yeah, no, it it really saddens me. A lot of conservative economists actually were supporting me in my effort to try to get these loans restructured because they understood the knock-on effect it would have on the housing market if through massive foreclosures, which we were able to curb back a bit, but not as much as I would have liked. But yeah, just common sense frequently does uh, attract support on both sides of uh, political aisles as well as ideological aisles. And uh, there, there was a meeting of the minds with the, with the progressive community, liberal community, because their focus was on homeowners, and ours was too. That wasn't really conservative or liberal. That was just the right thing to do. And so they did like what I had to say. They did like the fact I was trying to mitigate the need to reward some very bad behavior <laughs> by a lot of the large institutions. These bailouts were a terrible thing to do. We all held our nose. I still think they were far more generous than they needed to be. Some of them, I think, were unnecessary. But, you know, we kept a seat at the table. We tried to dial it back when we could try to charge for the bailouts. We just really tried hard to impose some accountability, which I think the people on the left appreciated as well. All right. I want to switch to the current bank situation, yeah. but we're going to take a quick break. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back. I'm speaking with Sheila Baer, former chair of the FDIC. So you've always stood out for your skepticism of Wall Street and for your eagerness to confront the big banks. And I think in a recent interview on CNBC, you said banks fail and that's okay. And so I assume that you're saying shareholders and creditors and lenders to banks and management should have the ultimate downside, but let's protect the depositors. Well, I I think, yes. I mean, for the most part, it's important to understand when you talk about letting a bank fail, and non-banks fail all the time. Companies go bankrupt. That's part of a dynamic economy. We're talking about letting a bank fail, yes. We're talking about letting their shareholders and their unsecured creditors take the losses and that the people who are responsible for the failure lose their jobs. That's what should happen. Insured depositors should always be protected. They always are protected. The FDIC has a perfect record on that. Uninsured depositors generally are also protected through the FDIC's process when the FDIC can achieve something called least cost resolution, which is statutorily required. But unlimited protection for uninsured depositors, I don't support that because I think, for instance, there were a lot of billionaires (laughs) at Silicon Valley who were protected from, I felt, their own mistakes. You could tell... The relationship of these large depositors with the management and the board, it was a very close relationship. They were feeding and encouraging the model, the banking model that the Silicon Valley bank management was pursuing. So, no, I did not view them as sympathetic. They probably could have taken a very small loss, maybe 10% on their uninsured deposits, because there were some good assets at Silicon Valley, which the FDIC can sell and recoup cost and pay the uninsured depositors. And they can also, based on their estimates of the value of those assets, they can pay an early dividend. So those accounts that were truly transaction accounts, I think there was a some media coverage suggesting almost all of this were transaction accounts and you had to do this to meet payroll. That really was a fairly small percentage of it. But to the extent they needed access to money for payroll and those types of things, you could have done that through an advanced dividend. So I don't think there's a long answer to your question. I don't think unlimited deposit insurance coverage is warranted. You are generally protecting very, very wealthy people. And it can be abusive for poorly managed banks because what they can do is they can offer a very high interest rate on their deposits, attract a lot of money just searching yield, then really grow rapidly, take a lot of crazy risk, and they're doing it on the FDIC's dime. So, no, I don't think unlimited coverage is a good idea. I do think unlimited coverage for something called business transaction accounts does make sense. These are true business transaction accounts used by businesses, nonprofits, local governments, organizations that use their deposit account to make payroll, to pay vendors, take the money in, spend the money out, like our checking accounts. Those almost always have to go above the insured caps just by their very nature of a lot of money going in and out on a daily basis. I do think there's a a good case for providing unlimited coverage for those types of accounts, at least during a crisis. We did that during the great financial crisis. We had authority then to do it. Congress took that authority away from us. I'm not sure why because it was a very successful program. But uh, unlimited coverage, I don't think it it would be very expensive and facilitate risk-taking and would disproportionately protect very wealthy people. So I can't really believe we're back here again. It's it's a much much smaller crisis in banks, but yet it's still just mind-boggling. So Christine Lagarde, she was at the IMF, the International Monetary Fund at the time. Now she's the head of the central uh, ECB. ECB. She has said that if Lehman Brothers were a little bit more Lehman sisters... (laughs) That's true. (laughs) We wouldn't be in this situation. Do you? Yeah. 
I do. I, I, I got to know Christine when she was head of finance for in France. That was when I was chair of the FDIC, and I've known her and been in touch with her on and off over the years. And she's really provided some great advocacy for women in finance. And yeah, I do agree with that. I think you never want to categorize and stereotype. So certainly there are a lot of risk-averse men, and there are a lot of women who go out there and, and can make some risky decisions. But as a whole, if you look at the research, women tend to be more risk-averse than men are. They also tend to think more in human terms. So all these subprime mortgages that Wall Street was securitizing, they were just data dots. They didn't think of them as real people, people who had nice, safe mortgages that were being refinanced on these very toxic mortgages and kind of hardship that would create on these households. I think women, maybe it's our maternal instincts, I don't know, I think women tend to think more in human terms and human impact, which maybe also feeds into their greater aversion to risk and recklessness and uh, and more thought about how decisions are impacting real people. So yeah, I agree with her. I think that it's a little speculative, but I, I think that's probably true. So is there anything in this particular financial crisis where banks... They didn't have a capital issue, but they had they lent long, and when rates moved up, the right. value of those loans right. went way down. Right. Is there anything that you would have done differently from how they chose to? You said a little bit about Silicon Valley, but First Republic, for example, yeah. would you have yeah. done anything differently? Well, yeah, they did a very poor job of of liquidity management. So, where do banks get their funding, their liquidity, their cash that they use to operate? They get it primarily from deposits. They also issue debt, and then of course they have their equity. They raise uh, capital through equity issuances, too. So those are the basic sources, but the lion's share is deposits. And you need to, in a rising interest rate environment, you need to very carefully manage your interest rate risk. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that when interest rates start going up, eventually you're going to have to pay more on your deposits to keep them. And so if those are not sticky or if they're, if they're, a lot of them are uninsured, which are not sticky the way insured deposits are, if they also are disproportionately come from sources that are part of a cohesive group, like venture capitalists or whatever. You need to worry about a kind of a herd mentality, feeding a deposit withdrawal. And also, even though these were liquidity failures, the market, since they were precipitated by the perception that these were insolvent or eventually would be insolvent institutions. So you can't really separate completely liquidity failures and failures from deposit runs with issues of solvency because they almost start with market perceptions that this bank's got a problem. Now, you can get into a broader issue, which is what we had that led to the banking collapse in the early 1930s, which is that people just started rationally running banks because they panic. It's one of the reasons we have the FDIC now. But these kind of one-off failures are almost always precipitated by solvency issues too. So they should have managed that. They shouldn't have loaded up on long-dated securities and very low-yielding loans that were going to be fixed. At least if they're going to do that, they should have had hedges on their interest rate risk. Derivatives, I'm not a fan of a lot of derivatives, but interest rate risk derivatives kept proving themselves to be pretty effective. And yeah, they're expensive, but you know what? That's what you need to do. They just decided not to to do it. I guess it was expensive or whatever. So it's really banking 101 that they didn't manage this. It was an obvious risk they had. They were still loading up on these securities. Interest rates were already going up. Inflation was there. We knew this was happening. So it it does kind of boggle the mind how this happened. But I guess maybe we could take a little bit of reassurance from that because this was such basic mismanagement. I'm hoping that the broader banking system is not reflective of bank management more broadly, and I don't think it is. I think these these banks were outliers. 
That's not to say there won't be more stress in the banking system. There will be as interest rates are going to be higher for longer as we need to accept now. That's going to put further stress on banks and the deposit funding. So banks and supervisors need to be on their toes. There may be more failures. But fingers crossed, we have a much better capitalized system now, so it won't be a huge problem the way we had during the Great Financial Crisis and certainly during the Great Depression. You know, banks are fragile entities and that they if are. people think they're going to fail, they will fail. They will fail. That's right. true. Well, yeah, if you're afraid your bank's going to fail, at a minimum, you will you might take out all your deposits. I mean, one of the things we tried to do at the FDIC was assure people that if their bank failed, they would have seamless access to their money, which is really important. Even if they know their deposits are protected, they think there'll be delays in getting it out. They'll go ahead and pull it out. So that was a very important, but you're right, just the perception that there there could be impeded access to their money or losses on their money. They'll pull it out pretty quickly. So I'm curious, some of the your sort of staunchest opponents, going back to any time you were sort of on the tough side of being a regulator, did any of them come back to you later to say, you know what, you were right, we were wrong? Yes, I have had that. Yes, I so I remember early on when I became chair of the FDIC, and we were convinced the other regulators weren't, the industry was not. We were convinced we were in some serious problems, and so I had that agency had been subject to some really significant downsizing. The deposit insurance fund was below its its statutorily set minimum, so I had to reverse course quickly. I had to start hiring people, and we needed to raise deposit insurance premiums because we were going to have bank failures, and we were already undercapitalized. And I just got killed. Fortunately, I got unanimous support from my board. Thank goodness. Thank you. And we've got tremendous feedback, a lot of it nasty and personal from the industry about this, including, not nasty, but the American Bankers Association definitely pushed back. But yes, later they did apologize. They said, you were right. We should have done that. On the Basel II, so-called Basel II advanced approaches, these are were capital, new capital rules that the FDIC successfully fought off that basically would have let banks use their own internal risk models to determine how much capital they needed to have, which was nuts. I mean, banks are inherently conflicted, right? They'll say, oh, we have very low risk, so we don't need much capital, because that boosts their return on equity. And guess how bank managers are paid? They're paid in equity. <laughs> and even so, if they don't have enough capital, they can't ever say that. They can't ever say that. Well, that's true. And just by representing the strength of your capital based on the perceived riskiness of your assets, you can game that a lot and mislead other investors about the true state of your financial condition. So, yes, but people later apologized to me about that, too, including some of my colleagues among the European regulators, because we were, this was part of a global agreement. And my first, called the Basel Committee, my first Basel Committee meeting, I really got hit hard. But they did apologize later. A lot of them did. So, like I said, I don't, that makes me feel good. And we're all friends now. And, but I really, I just would have rather they listened to me instead of saying, oh, yeah, we should have listened to you. <laughs> Education is yes. something near and dear to your heart. I know you have a series of children's books. I do. I read some this week. I read about uh, Princess Persephone's Castle and inflation and your most recent book, Daisy Bubble, dealing with the risk of market speculation. Right. I would have read them to my children when they were younger. I suggest you send them to Washington. To <laughs> so, so, Policymakers maybe should read them. <laughs> they can pretend they're reading them to their children. <laughs> Well, you're joking, but it was kind of when I decided to start writing picture books on money, I thought parents read these books with their kids so I can provide some stealth financial education to them, too. And I get a lot of feedback. I hear from parents. I learned a lot. I wish I'd had this when I was a child. I, I get a lot of that feedback. 
So when you think about education, was it children you were really looking to educate? Yes. Or was it grown-ups? I know we talked about you could be both, but yeah. who do you think the books are yeah, for? They're, well, they are for children, first and Which foremost. Depends on the child's reading level, but second through fifth grade, I think, is a sweet spot. But older kids do learn from them, and adults learn from them. A, a group called the Foolproof Foundation has been very supportive of my books and raising money to make book donations. And they have piloted programs where the older kids, the middle school and high school students, will read the books to the elementary school students. They're all learning together. But it's nice because the adult or the older child doesn't have to admit there's a lot about money they don't know. They can just learn together with the child by reading it to the child and help them learn. So it really was trying to reach the broader population through the vehicle of a child's picture book. I think I'm also trying to change the culture a little bit around money. I think the most recent two books in particular deal with risks that have been associated with very loose money. So one's about inflation and one's about asset bubbles and speculating in asset bubbles and things like crypto. The book's not about crypto. There's some back matter information. But look at all the young men that waste money on gambling on crypto or MIM stocks. And they think they're going to meet the smart guys, and they don't. They almost always lose money. And I, I want to get to them early and help them understand the risk of that and how that kind of activity it doesn't create value. You want to go out and make money, go do it. But come up with a new innovation, a new product that's really going to add value to society. You can make a lot of money doing that. You don't need to speculate and probably lose a lot of money you can't afford to lose. And really, there's so many better ways to use your money. So that culturally, I'm trying to get young people to think differently about money, saving, not spending, being skeptical, being worried. Understand, look, financial services, lots of wonderful people in financial services, a lot of my friends in financial services, but they are in the business of making money. They want to make money off of your credit card. They want to make money off of your bank account. They want to They want to make money off of your loan. They want to make money off of your buy now, pay later plan, whatever, because there's a lot of hidden fees in that. Kids need to understand the person on the other side of the transaction is trying to make money. They need to understand maybe it's a win-win proposition, maybe it isn't. But I want young people to learn early on, be worried, be skeptical. This is your money. You worked hard to get this money. Hold on to this money, right? Don't don't waste it on some usurious lender or, or Ponzi scammer. That wariness and skepticism is something also I want to try to instill more culturally with younger people. Mm-hmm. I think it's something really lacking in our curriculum. I know you and I yes, yeah. are supporters of the Council for Economic yes. Education. yes. Who is trying to get every state to mandate at least right. one, at least one, that's personal right. finance course before yeah. you graduate high school? Yeah, yeah, it's been uh, difficult. They're getting a lot of traction. Of course, the other problem is, and CEE Council for Economic Education has a lot of very high quality content for teachers to use. Unfortunately, there are some other organizations that some of the financial educational curricula is more product promotion as opposed to financial education. So I do think it's important for teachers to look for groups like CEE, Foolproof, that are more responsibly committed to empowering children to know how to understand and manage and protect their money, not so much trying to promote financial products. I think that's where it has to start. It is. It absolutely is. Thank you for this illuminating conversation, and it's great to see you, but we still haven't done the lightning round. So okay. We'll take oh, a quick okay. break. All right. And then we'll be right back. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. 
I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. If you care about what happens to your money, you need to listen to SoFi Daily. Unlike other podcasts talking about finances, markets, and businesses, some spending more than 60 minutes to cover everything, SoFi cuts to the heart of the financial world in five minutes or less. In each episode, you'll hear about every financial piece of news you need to know, from previous market updates and future trends to things happening that day. It's a great way to track what's going on and how it could affect your money. So stay on top of your finances. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. Here we go. So you may know this as Would You Rather. And the only challenge is you can't think about the answer. You just oh, dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> All right. Comes I'm sitting up straight. I'm on my toes. <laughs> Would you rather have universal respect or unlimited power? Universal respect. Underdressed or overdressed? Mm, overdressed for sure. <laughs> Grandma taught me that. <laughs> New Mexico or New York? Oh, I just got back from New Mexico. Okay, That's why we I, put okay, that in there. All right, okay. Uh, now, I've got to say New York, though, because there's more to do. I mean, New Mexico is lovely, but you've got plays, you've got theater, you've got art, you've got all sorts of things in New York. I'm a committed New Yorker. Yeah. Would you rather have a pause button or a rewind button on your life? Rewind. Where would you rewind to? The crisis. I'm proud of what we did during the crisis, but I, I racked my brain at the, there was— something we could have done more to protect homeowners. So, yeah, if I had if I had seconds on that, I, I had some ideas now that I didn't think of then that I think might have saved more homes, but it is what it is. You, you do the best you can under difficult circumstances. Yep. Uh, well, you, you really did good work. Okay, would you rather be at the beach or the mountains? Beach. And if you could have dinner with anyone, alive or dead, who would it be? Agatha Christie. Agatha Christie. Yes, I think she's just an amazing writer. Her plots are intricate. She writes during a time period in England, well, spans several decades. The The way she creates imagery of these quaint English villages and the characters and the books, they're always murder mysteries, but they're never violent. They're never gory. There's a gentility about them and a literary quality about them that I think is wonderful. Yes, I would love to meet her. Have you read them all? I have, yes, yeah. Okay, so one last thing. What is the best investment you've ever made and the worst investment? And we have a broad definition of investment. It could be okay. in a class or someone you met. Or right. It could be anything. Right. So my best investment absolutely was in Amazon, which really early I heard Jeff Bezos uh, talk at an Aspen Institute when it was Amazon was just this tiny little company and everybody was trying to figure out who it was. And I was just so taken with his passion about his business model and his customers. that wow, I'm going to buy some stock. So I bought $10,000 worth back then, and it is worth you know, a good part of my uh, retirement savings now. So that, and any young people listening to this, I never sold it. I held on to it, right? So it's, it's there for my retirement. Wow. It's quite a retirement. Good for you. You know, my worst one, or 
the one I didn't think through as well as I should was TIPS funds. I bought TIPS. So I bought. So people know it's Treasury. Treasury and protected uh, securities. I bought some before anybody saw inflation coming, and that's done very well. But then I waited when people saw inflation coming and bought a lot more not fully appreciating that though it's lagging, right? So if, if market expectations are already anticipating inflation and then you buy, you're going to lose money on them. They're going to lose market value. So that was a bit of a shock. I didn't buy a lot of it, but I thought, oh, this is going to be super safe and protect me from inflation. It kind of did just the opposite. All right. Well, thank you for being oh, with us no here today. Where can we find your books? So my books, Money Tales, just search my name wherever you buy books. You, they will have them. You can also go to my website, moneytalesbooks.com. There's a lot of information about summaries of the books, links to where you can buy them. And also for teachers, especially teachers for Title I schools, we have a program for book donations. So there's a place on that website to apply for free books as well for your schools. Sheila, thank you so much for spending the time with me today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today on How She Does It. When you have a moment, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to updates from the Her Money community at hermoney.com slash subscribe. Our producers are Catherine Tuggle and Haley Pascalides, with help from everyone at Her Money. This podcast is mixed and mastered out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is from Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you here with us again. Onward.